Welcome back to episode three of season two of the Biomes podcast, a place to get a gutful of microbes from the world's leading microbiome researchers. Now, five to ten years ago, most of us would never have heard of kombucha, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi. But these foods seem to have transitioned from boutique health shops to regular supermarket shelves around the world. Now, much of this food trend can be attributed to the evolving research into the gut microbiome. However, the research into these foods hasn't quite kept track. One man who has spent a lot of time researching these foods, though, is Professor Paul Cotter of one of the leading microbiome research centres in the world, APC Microbiome Ireland in University College Cork and Chagas Moor Park Food Research Centre, where I spent a few years uh, doing my own PhD. Now, Professor Cotter and his team have spent the last few years systematically collecting and studying various fermented foods like kefir and kombucha around the world, examining their microbial properties and investigating their potential health benefits. His work is slowly uncovering the scientific evidence behind the real health benefits of fermented foods. We discuss whether the evidence for these foods live up to the hype, uh, whether there should be a recommended daily intake of microbes and how this field will evolve in the future. This second series of biomes is sponsored by Microbiome Insights, who are leading providers of end-to-end -end microbiome sequencing and bioinformatics analysis. So whether you're performing basic research in nutrition or developing a new pre or probiotic product, Microbiome Insights has the expertise and the experience to help you achieve your research goals. They are offering free study consultations to all Biomes listeners, so head over to microbiomeinsights.com to find out more. Paul, thanks very much for, uh, for having a chat with me. It's great um, to reconnect and see what you've been getting up to in the last few years in your research as, uh, and as well as kind of summarize what you've done um, before that. So maybe if we can start off, you can kind of give us a little introduction to your background and how you kind of got into the field of the microbiome and, and the microbes within fermented foods. Yeah, so I was thinking about this this morning because I knew I was going to be chatting with you and just even thinking about how that whole area became so, so much an area of focus in, in Cork over the years. And Cork, because of, for those of you not familiar with Ireland uh, who would be listening, um, it's always been an area where there's been a big focus on, on dairy and agriculture and food and, and whatnot. And um, in, in that regard, I guess what's been, uh, what's, what's notable is that in the past, there was, since research was carried out in Cork, there was always uh, what was known as a dairy research center at University College Cork or dairy science, even before there was microbiology or, or, or any of the kind of standard names that we're used to hearing about these days. And in parallel then at the other institute that's located nearby at Chagas, where, where you obviously studied um, and where I'm located now, 
uh, that was originally known as the Moore Park Dairy Production Research Centre. And so there was always a, an interest in dairy fermentation for that reason, cheese in particular, and there was lots of legends of fermented food research who came through that, those two institutes over the years. And I guess I'm kind of um, standing on their shoulders or, or, or benefiting from the, the, the vast history uh, that's been of research in that particular area. So for me in particular, I came to University College Cork, UCC, uh, to do my BSc uh, in microbiology and then kind of a more molecular slant for my, my PhD. Um, continued on to establish, uh, get some grants and do some lecturing there until 2009, where there was a, a big jump for me in that I moved to, to Chagas, uh, this other institute that's about 40 minute drive away. Uh, to establish a new research group to that was really designed to to harness uh, research in the microbiome space but to really apply it to food and the food chain and so we've really been doing that on a large scale um, ever since and I've been very lucky to have a fantastic team of students and postdocs that have really facilitated that so um, it's been a, an exciting journey and one that's still ongoing but it's, it's been a pleasure every step of the way. Yeah, and that's great. I think what's, what some people might know is that Moore Park is based on kind of a big kind of agricultural uh, research facility as well. So it's great that you are kind of that research link from, as they say, from farm to fork, literally, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at the processes, which we'll talk about, um, of how microbes influence our foods from, you know, the point that they're produced uh, all the way to you know when they make it into our bodies and then what they're doing to our bodies as well so yeah um, as yeah. you say it's probably a unique center in that regard in that you can walk around the fields during your lunch break and you can see the grass and there's grass research going on and there's there's cattle grazing um, and even the fact that we have facilities there for food processing and a large pilot scale plant where we make the foods and then people consume them and we can study the microbiome so literally the, the whole way along the, the chain you have everything yeah great yeah i remember those going for walks on, on my lunch times and during my phd it was great very can, can clear the head out in the fields with the cows um, so let's have a, a little kind of start off and look back to kind of history of what what you know anyway from your kind of years experience of the kind of history and the kind of culture around fermented foods you know fermenting was originally a, a method of preservation um, and and it still is around the world so maybe kind of talk us through your own knowledge of of fermenting uh, fermented foods and where it started and, and where how, how it's kind of evolved to where these foods are today yeah, so there, there's lots of evidence um, throughout history uh, from thousands of years back of the of food being fermented from the Middle East, from China. And, and But ultimately, I think when you drill down into it, almost every society around the world has some um, history of fermenting foods. And for all of that to have happened um, in parallel is not a coincidence. And as you mentioned, it, it came of a necessity initially in that we obviously there wasn't refrigeration and other approaches to, to store foods um, uh, and extend the shelf life and and so with food only having a finite shelf life there was a need to come up with some alternative to overcome that and so um, by, by fluke or by a variety of different means people happened to notice that if you stored food in one particular way it spoiled but if you stored it in another way it um, something happened to it that resulted in it changing its structure appearance taste and so on but that it allowed the, the food to say stay stable for a longer period of time and you could consume it not only within a number of days but sometimes over, over weeks and months and so 
Um, in parallel with that, I guess what I'm talking about there relates to foods, um, fermented dairy and whatnot, but obviously wine and, and other fermented um, beverages developed over that whole period to allow to, to, to extend the shelf life of grapes. And, and um, in a way, that all of that evolved simply because the quality of water in very many locations wasn't sufficiently good. So fermenting a material to increase its safety and shelf life was necessary as well. And so I usually give the example of whereby some of these things happen by fluke. So whereby um, some, some tribe or nomadic group of people stored some milk and they happened in the absence of a, of a proper storage vessel, they may have stored the, the milk in a, in a pouch that was made from a, an animal's stomach or a, um, something like that. And as a consequence, the microbes there uh, entered into the milk and fermented it and produced something that was very distinctive from the original product and so that's thought to be how maybe kefir grains initially became established or if you think about cheese and norm and the, the need to introduce rennet as an enzyme that you would typically find in the calf gut then, then rennet again that is something that is done on an, on an industrial scale now but originally would have been performed by coincidence by people who wanted to store the product, didn't really realize what they were doing, but by fluke came across a, a nice product or something that was more stable. Mm. And I think we see that, you know, that, that's where it kind of originated from. But as we kind of modernize in our food systems, we, we tend to lose that. We don't have to rely on fermenting anymore. And with that, we've kind of lost a lot of these fermented foods. Um, I mean, you can still see them in some diets around the world, especially in Asia and, and every, every country seems to have their own fermented food. I was at a conference in South Africa a couple of years ago and they introduced me to mass, which I'd never heard of before. And it's a fermented milk, which is, you know, really common in, in South Africa. And so what, what is it about that? That's, that's, is, is it just a trend of, you know, our, our Western diets in general that we're losing them or, or why are we, we losing that kind of connection with uh, with fermented food? It's probably more of a philosophical one than a, than a scientific one. But It's a good question. In fact, it's something that's, that we've discussed within our group quite a lot recently. Um, and and uh, we've, we've written some reviews that heard you out soon kind of on, on the topic. But to my mind, I think the, the lack of, the, of or the, the, the decrease in the consumption of fermented foods or the, the lack of exposure to, to microbes in our diet in general is kind of more of a Western phenomenon. Uh, the, those fermented foods continued to be consumed on a large scale in Africa, in um, the Far East in particular, but lots of Eastern Europe even. And, and maybe what happened in Western society is there was kind of a perception of, of microbes being bad and, and with um, pasteurization and other processing approaches like that, microbes were given, were, were associated with food spoilage or food um, safety issues. And the, as a consequence of trying to address those through canning and extreme treatment of food and UHT and other approaches, which re did extend the shelf life and increased their, their safety, you could, you could say. Um, but as a consequence, the baby was kind of thrown out by, with the bathwater bath and that all of the good microbes that are present therein were, were removed as well. And even in some of the, the fermented foods that continue to be made were made on a large scale with only maybe one or two starter or adjunct strains in there. So it was a very basic microbial composition that didn't really reflect the original artisanal product um, to the same extent. But in recent years, there's really been um, a movement back towards natural foods and minimal processing 
and the um, and for fermented foods in particular, uh, doing it in such a way, making the foods at home yourself, having the right microbes in there if they're being mass produced, do it in a way that reflects the artisanal process with more strains in there. And I, and I think that feeds into a whole other larger discussion relating to the potential that I think some of the issues that we see in Western society in recent uh, decades relating to uh, inflammatory issues and uh, especially autoimmunity and allergy and, and such so on and so forth. I think a lot of that is related to a lack of exposure in our diets and in our lives in general and that a movement towards uh, addressing that and reintroducing beneficial microbes into our lives can help to provide solutions to those issues. Yeah, I think you're right, because you're right, especially in Eastern Europe, let's say, you know, people will preserve everything. They'll, they'll ferment berries and, you know, any, any food they have and, and create these kind of their own little unique cultures out of them, which, I don't know, we, we just don't tend to do in, in uh, more kind of westernized countries, whether it's time or effort or, or whatever it is. Um, so let's kind of talk about some of the, some of the work that you've done on, on particular foods. So I know you've done a bit of work on cheeses and so cheese is, is almost like wine, I suppose, you know, it, it can, it has these kind of very unique profiles to it, depending on where it's produced and how it's stored and, and how it's made. And you've done kind of research into that, into how the kind of microbes within the kind of production process um, influence uh, a cheese's flavor, how it kind of ripens over time. So maybe tell us about, a little bit about your work into, into cheeses and, and how the kind of microbes within that process affect it. Yeah, so our, our, our first venture into this, um, so I'll come, I'll come into this from, from kind of a, a, an unusual angle. All so right. the first study was one whereby we got involved in, in studying a cheese microbiome uh, using some of the, te the technologies we use for other fermented foods and for the human gut and whatnot. But the only reason we got involved is that the PhD student was looking at a phenomenon known as cheese pinking. And this was a defect that you find in cheeses. People had been aware of it for maybe a hundred years or more, or at least it had been in the scientific literature, probably existed for an awful lot longer. And it occurred in certain types of cheese that um, were... I guess, continental type cheeses. So that had a, a high temperature treatment process uh, involved. And so this student was coming towards the end of his PhD, had done, had, was, had set himself the very tough challenge of trying to determine the basis for this phenomenon, despite lots of people having failed previously. And he did all sorts of chemical and biological and microbiological characterizations of the cheese and hadn't really gotten very far with it, unfortunately. And just out of a sheer sense of desperation, asked us, one of my PhD students, uh, Lisa Quigley, to see if she would help him out. And so we were intrigued. Um, and so we, we gave it a go. And lo and behold, from the defect cheeses uh, we, that had this pinking. Um, now the pinking is just a, a discoloration. It, it had no taste uh, defect or didn't make people sick. But we know that a particular um, type of microorganism, Thermos thermophilus, that you more typically find associated with hot springs and extreme environments. Um, it is a microbe that people can culture, but is one that people from a cheese industry would never want to try to culture because it's so, um, tip, you would imagine, unrelated to, to cheese microbiology. And so lo and behold, we, we cultured the microbe from the defect cheeses, we grew it up, 
we put it back into fresh cheese and recreated the problem, kind of a la Cox postulates for, for cheese, so to speak. <laughs> <For> cheese. <laughs> um, and actually proved that that, that microbe was the, 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 the problem for that defect. And so that, that really intrigued us. And um, from that, we branched into lots of other um, studies looking at things like the difference between the, the rind of the cheese versus the, the inside part of the cheese or whether the, the time of the day that the, the cheese um, was made within the processing plant uh, dictated what microbes you would find in there. Mm-hmm. And that, that indeed proved to be the case. And we also found that the lots of the microbes that you find in the cheese are present in the cheese making environment. You may be making a, a cheddar, but you might find some microbes on that, that particular batch of cheddar from a, an Emmental or something else that was made a couple of days before because those starters or those microbes are still yeah. in the environment. So even despite best efforts for cleaning for CIP and, and, and cleaning practices, you still will find some residual microbes. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I guess that really culminated in a study then that we published this year whereby um, Aaron Walsh and Greeno McCory with our group, what they did is a survey of 55 different artisanal uh, cheeses that were made from around Ireland, all sorts of different cheeses of, of long and short ripening time and mold ripened and, uh, and non-surface non, um, ripened cheeses and, and really compared and contrasted all of those and went a step further and actually collated all of the various different bits of information that was available about cheese microbiomes around the world in general, and, and did a very deep survey of, of what you find and what are the consistencies, where patterns do you see in relation to which microbes correlate with particular flavors and, and, and lots of other things like that. Ah, it's amazing. And I suppose at an industrial scale, yeah, as you're talking about, these companies or people producing cheese want to make things very standardized and make sure there's no other kind of organisms there. But, but really, you know, at, at kind of originally, it's those organisms that are in the environment that give the cheese its flavor in the first place. When you're talking small scale cheese batches, it's probably the people who are producing it. I don't know, did you look at that? Was it the people working in it who influenced the cheese profiles as well? But, um, you know, cheeses have their own kind of unique um, microbial signature, I guess. So, I know you can, I mentioned wine, you, you have these amazing wine tasters who can, you know, taste wine and tell you exactly what vineyard it's from. Can you do that with cheese? Can you kind of sequence the microbiome of cheese and tell you exactly, you know, what region of the world it's from or what production facility it's from? Yeah, so there is kind of this concept of a terroir equivalent for, um, for cheeses as well. So it relates to kind of provenance and, and the, the naming of the cheese. And it's used a lot in particular in relation to certain uh, French and Italian cheeses, PDO cheeses they refer to, um, where they can only mark the cheese as being of a particular name based on, on where it originates from. And so in that regard, it, um, the, the microbiome of those cheeses is distinctive. It's strangely enough, I guess the more research we do and the better we get a sense as to what those microbes are, then the better I think in theory somebody could create a counterfeit cheese mm-hmm. because you always know which microbes you need to put back together to create yeah. the cheese. But there are undoubtedly some distinctive features and you can have the classical scenario whereby you, certain blue cheeses are fermented by being put into a cave. And so it's the cave microbes and cave molds that, that contribute to the fermentation process. And we're involved in a very intriguing um, project that's led by Avelino Ordenez in, in Lyon, who, who you may recall from his time in Chagask. Um, and what we're doing there, uh, what Avelino is doing and we're helping him with is to study the microbiome of, of some of those type of cheeses, looking at the cheese microbiota, but also the, the cave microbiota and where the overlap exists. 
No way. That's amazing. So we're eating cave microbes with some of our cheeses. Yeah. That's great. But, but you, so you've kind of moved on kind of to, to look at other kind of fermented foods, which are becoming kind of more popular or have a kind of resurgence these days, and not only cheese. And you began looking at things like kefir um, and I don't know if you looked at sauerkraut and, so, and some of these other ones, but kefir I think is a very interesting one because kefir grains are very hard to acquire. You know, traditionally you just get them off your neighbor, you know, and, and kefir kind of get passed around. Now you can buy kind of kefir drinks and but they're really just a kind of, a, a kind of small combination of kind of well-known strains usually. But you've kind of gone through a process of trying to characterize kefir grains from different regions. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and what you've found. Yeah, so we've, we've done this on different scales over the years. So initially we had a PhD student, Alison Dobson, that, that took one kefir grain and looked at the microbiome of the grain and of the milk. And we thought that was fantastic and we were very proud of ourselves. And, and then a couple of years later, another student, Alan Marsh, um, took that to another level and looked at 25 different grains that he sourced from around the world from um, the different enthusiasts. And we thought that was fantastic and we couldn't improve on it. And, and, but actually what we're doing now is part of a, another project is to take this to a whole other level. And we've established a, face group, a Facebook group and um, have contacted an even wider group of individuals from right around the globe to look at both the, the milk kefir and the water kefir microbiome. So, so those studies are, are ongoing. But it's amazing the number of different enthusiasts that, that are out there and the different history of those uh, of those grains and how they were, as you say, shared among families and friends. Um, but nowadays with, with newer alternatives like Amazon and eBay and, and so on, you, there's, uh, the, the, the world is the oyster of the kefir grain and that's the, the, they're, they're circulating around. Um, and what's intriguing is a lot of those grains that we've received look so much different from one another. Uh, you have kind of the generic classical conventional scenario where you see lots of lactobacilli in the grain and lactococcus kind of blooming in the in the, the beverage but there's lots of other tweaks where you have acetobacter and leuconostoc and different molds and saccharomyces and, and decra and, and things like that that can also um, take a, a foothold and that can result in quite a different flavor as a consequence um, of what you do and then if you combine that with different milks and different storage temperatures and and and, and all sorts of other variables, you can really come up with um, a vast variety of, of quite different products. Yeah, so, so kefir really isn't kind of one thing. When people talk about, oh, I'm, I'm drink, drinking kefir or eating kefir, it could be drastically different to what someone else is drinking. It's just really a kind of a combination of various microbes, which, which could differ depending on where you've, uh, where you've got it from, I guess. Yeah, I, just, just on that point, before we move on, it, it, and this is where I kind of put on, put on a, a different hat and have a bit of a rant in that there, there are some products that are out there that has, are marketed as kefir, mm. but to my mind are the equivalent of a dilute yogurt. So yeah. it's, it's, kind of, it's tough for the non-microbiologist reading the side of a label and seeing that their so-called kefir has lactobacillus bulgaricus and streptomophilus in it. And, and as, as you will know, and, and lots of the listeners will know, those are yogurt microbes. So you, you're drinking dilute yogurt. Yeah. And so some others will try a little bit more and maybe add in a token one or two other kefir microbes, but that might only be added in at the end of the fermentation. And so it's, it's not real. So I guess there's a, a need to ensure quality. Um, if something is made from a kefir grain, then fantastic. Or sometimes large scale production with a grain is challenging. But in that case, what we're trying to do and others is to pick out 
what are the key components of the core microbiome of the grain or of the beverage and try to recreate those in a way that you're replicating the, the key attributes of the food and the health benefits and the flavor while not sacrificing in terms of quality. Yeah. And I think what's probably happening, what you kind of touched on is, is much like what we see in the gut microbiome of humans, you know, where we're losing a lot of that diversity. We're all becoming more similar to each other, I guess, as we Westernize. And that's probably what's happening to kefir grains, I guess, as, as they're passed around. We're losing that kind of individuality of, of, of kefir. And, and they're all kind of becoming more similar and less diverse, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah true. It's true of, of every fermented food. I guess when cheese production really began scaling up in about 100 years ago in, in New Zealand initially and starter cultures began to be used, that instead of relying on the natural microbes that were present in the milk or the environment, there was a, the addition of one or two specific strains, which is great in terms of mass production and quality control and so on but you are losing some, some attributes and you are all, you're also exposing yourself to other challenges like um, phage, which if they wipe out one, that one particular starter strain, then your whole cheese manufacturing process is, is impacted. So every time a fermented food is taken and it's trying to be, people try to mass produce it, there are problems. Um, but I think the greater appreciation of the importance of the microbes and the diversity of microbes in there means that there's more of an effort now to have a, a more, a slightly more complicated cocktail of microbes in your fermented food. Yeah. But one kind of genera or uh, that, that seems to be common to, to a lot of these fermented foods are, are, are lactobacilli. I mean, I know there's lots in lots of different species in, in all these uh, different foods, but especially in these kind of milk um, fermented foods, um, there's lactobacilli. What is it kind of evolutionarily about lactobacilli that, that make them suitable fermented foods? Is the production probably of lactic acid because that prevents other um, species, you know, growing into it to kind of spoil it? Is, it? is there certain kind of flavors that kind of differ between different species of lactobacilli or why is that kind of retained itself in all these fermented foods throughout time? Yeah, and, and for the molecular taxonomists, that's become even more challenging recently in that lactobacilli have now been reassigned to a whole range of different genera again. So we're all having to relearn our, our classical microbiology and, and um, get used to using these new names. But coming back to your, your point, um, yeah, they, they, what's been intriguing, and I, I know Olivia McAuliffe, our, our um, colleague at Chagas, has looked at this and others, is how lactobacilli have evolved um, into, especially those that are used in dairy. And so a lot of the lactobacilli are found in, in the environment and in particular like plant-based material. And so you find certain types of lactobacilli such as plantarum and, and others that uh, are dominating in kimchi and sauerkraut and the kind of more plant-based fermentations. But those which you find in dairies uh, are, are obviously very closely related to those, but they've gone through a kind of a reductionist evolution in that they've lost um, some of the genes that are associated with uh, the with those other sugar sources or carbohydrate sources and have focused more specifically on, on milk and have acquired plasmids for lactose utilization and so on. So there's kind of a... a, a a convergence of um, of activities or evolution among certain lactobacilli and those that you find in dairy. So in, in that regard, um, they have become more specialized. Uh, they, if you use cheese as an analogy, you find a scenario whereby certain microbes, um, certain genera like lactococcus and streptococcus, 
dominate early. So they produce the acid that is the protection piece of the jigsaw. But then because of the byproducts they produce and the dropping down of the pH, that's where the lactobacilli then kick in. Um, they're more, more tolerant of the low pH. And they add an extra layer of complexity by producing a lot of the flavors. Um, they can do lots of different things with proteins and break them down into peptides and eventually amino acids. And it's the combination of those that can give you a very nice or a very awful flavor, depending on which particular lactobacilli you have. Mm, great. And so how much, I suppose one of the big questions in um, the, the field of fermented foods is, whether these microbes, these lactobacilli, these lactococcus, all these different species, these yeasts, whether they colonize the gut or what they're doing in the gut. And this is kind of the, the third step in the process that you're looking at. You've looked at kind of production, you've looked at kind of flavors and everything that's happening in the food, and now what's happening in, in humans when we eat them as well. So firstly, you know, what do we know about the strains or the types of microbes that are in the foods and whether they stick in the gut or whether they pass through have, have you looked into that much yeah so that that's kind of a very big interest of ours in particular now so we, we we're doing a lot of surveying of fermented foods at the moment so we've we've an ongoing survey of as many different african fermented foods as we can uh, study and a corresponding one based in, in south america but our first kind of dipping of our toe into that uh, was a study that's just been published by John Leach, a PhD student with us, where John took, I think it was 58 different fermented foods from, from around the world or different types of foods that were, some were plant-based, others we would characterize as dairy, and a third group that were, um, it wasn't even so much plant, it was more uh, sugar-based fermented foods like kombucha and water kefir and brine-based fermented foods like sauerkraut and kimchi and so on. And so he studied those and did a, an in-depth microbiome characterization of them. Um, and so we, we had that data and we were analyzing it. But in parallel, we um, were talking to Danilo Ercolini's group. Um, so Danilo is based in Naples and he is part of this large uh, EU consortium um, that, that, that we lead known as MASTER. And so at one of those meetings, we got talking about what he was up to and what we were up to. Uh, he had at Danilo's Institute, uh, Eduardo Pasoli, who previously worked with Nicola Sagasa, had, had moved there. And he was doing a survey of the lactic acid bacteria that you find in the gut of humans using existing databases and was wondering to what extent those overlapped with the lactic acid bacteria that you find in fermented foods which was great, but the, the challenge is that ironically, there's a lot of information about gut microbiomes, but not so much about food microbiomes, even though they're, those microbes are easier to culture and so on. So we had all of this new data that John had generated. So we, we shared it with um, Danilo and Eduardo and um, got involved in, a, in an investigation to see how much of an overlap there is. And it was quite intriguing in that there was quite a, a degree of overlap between the, for particular species at least, between the foods, uh, the, the species that you find in fermented foods and in the gut. Other scenarios, there were other scenarios where you'd find quite different um, lineages of species in one versus the other. But so that's still being teased apart, but there's undoubtedly, I think, a lot of the, the microbes that you find in fecal samples from humans that can be traced to uh, that origin. The, the question then becomes, okay, so if feces is um, 
is an indicator of what's present in the gut, but where are those microbiomes, are those microbes establishing? Are they more so in the small intestine um, and to an even greater extent? So that would be intriguing to look at in the future as well. So the, the, that's one, um, one route we've taken. We've also been involved in some other studies, um, some with John Crine, in fact, more recently, uh, who together with Ted Dynan, who I know has, has done one of these podcasts previously, is interested in, in gut brain. And we've started to look at the impact of fermented foods on anxiety and depression symptoms and, and so on and so forth, initially in, in uh, animal models. And what we see there is that we can give the animal, say, a milk kefir, and it has an impact to, to a different extent, depending on the milk kefir, on some of those behaviors. And when we look at their microbiome, though, it's not always the fermented food microbes that are changing it. What seems to happen is that either the, those microbes or the, the metabolites they produce are doing something to either the host or to the other microbes in the gut. And it's other microbes that are starting to flourish then. So it's kind of an indirect effect. So I think there's a lot of teasing out to be done. It probably differs from one fermented food to another or even a particular version of one fermented food to another. But we're really only just starting to... to dip our toes into the water and get to see what's going on. But I think it's something that the whole field is going to be to enjoy trying to tease apart in the years to come. That's interesting because what we know about probiotics, I suppose, in recent years or single strains is that they don't tend to change the, the microbiome composition. They don't tend to stick around really. They only kind of stick around as, as long as you're taking them. Mm. Um, unless there's some evidence in maybe in infants that they, they might stick around for a bit longer. Um, but, but fermented foods might, might be a bit more beneficial in that because they're more complex, some of the strains might actually stick around from what you're saying, and they might have some more kind of global changes to the microbiome. So is that to do with the microbes that are within those fermented foods, or could it be to do with some of the other things that are in there, some of the metabolites they're producing? Could it be to do with... You mentioned phage before. These are kind of bacteriophages, these viruses that affect uh, bacteria. Or do we know that yet, why they're having those changes on the, the gut microbiome? I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. Um, when we did our, the, the, the best publication relating to the, the vast variety of different types of fermented foods all in one, one of the things that we looked for are um, what we, what we, I can't remember the exact acronym we used in the end, but it was something like PHAGCs, putative health associated gene clusters, which is a bit of a mouthful. But the, the logic there is that we, would, we looked for some of the genes that you would typically find in a, a beneficial gut micro, microbe um, in terms of does it produce a bacteriocin? Does it have genes associated with colonization? Uh, does it have bile resistance genes? Uh, does it produce GABA, um, which is a neurotransmitter, as you know, and, and things like that. And we found that quite a number of the fermented food microbiomes had microbes with all of those activities. And that that's not just by coincidence. So you could argue that maybe every food microbiome has those, but we also have lots of information from other fermented food, uh, sorry, other food microbiomes like um, milk powders and, and so on. And those traits were very much reduced in those sort of um, populations. So I think the, this, the specific microbes can, can have a direct impact. You also have a scenario whereby there's a prebiotic effect, I imagine, in that the, uh, so there, there are exopolysaccharides like uh, kefirin that's produced when uh, lactobacillus kefiri grow on, in, in milk kefir. And I think that probably contributes and there's other 
uh, analogous products um, present in other fermented foods as well. And then you have the, the metabolites that are, if you want to use kind of the more buzzword, the postbiotics, which are produced within the fermented foods that are having the effect either on the microbes in the gut or on the host. And then you're doing something to the host and the immune system and that's changing and that's impacting on the gut microbiome. So there's, there's lots of crosstalk and lots of teasing apart to be done to figure that all out. And it will probably require using quite simple models and building on those um, with increasing layers of complexity over time to properly stitch it apart. But they, well, so that'll be nice. Um, another approach that we've engaged in from the kefir perspective is to make quite simple communities containing maybe four or five bacteria and two or three yeast. And we've done this with uh, ben Willing and Ben Bury in University of Edmonton in Canada. And so what we did with our simple microbial community is see if we could recreate re 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 the effective um, consequences of consuming a kefir in mice who were fed a, a high fat diet and became uh, obese to see if that more simple community could recreate the, the beneficial effects and, and lo and behold it has done. So lots of different angles and tangents and, and things that will help us to tease all of that apart. No, I think it only shows the, the complexity of it all and trying to tease out, you know, the, the complexity of a fermented food microbiome, which has all these different species in it and all these metabolites and how that interacts with an even more complex microbiome inside the gut is, uh, is a lifetime of work, uh, at least. But I think what's interesting what you're saying is that maybe the, there might necessarily have to be live microbes in those foods to have an effect. And this is what's kind of discussed in the probiotic field as well, mm -hmm. is that sometimes it's what the microbes produce um, or, you know, these exopolysaccharides, for example, that you talked about on the, on the, out, on the outside of the, the microbe that's having the effect. And that is interesting, I suppose, for fermented foods because of the need for pasteurization sometimes and, and things like that. So, you know, what do you know about that? Do, do microbes necessarily have to be alive or is there any evidence from kind of some of these kind of maybe pasteurized fermented foods, whether they would have effect? So I think much like the, the probiotic area, it's a case by case scenario. I don't doubt that there are some instances where your consumer is going to get a benefit from consuming a, a, a fermented food that has been pasteurized or heat treated but I think there's a better chance for health benefit if you're consuming the product with the live microbes in there. And that, I suppose if you're consuming the, the one with the heat inactivated strains, your hope that you're relying on that attribute being a particular metabolite or a component of the cell wall or something that, that's left there. Whereas if you consume a product that contains the live microbes, all of those attributes will still be there. But if it's some other activity that's reliant on the microbe being live or producing something in situ in the gut, then you also have the opportunity of benefiting from that as well. So um, I, I, as it, going back to my, my initial answer, it is a case-by-case -case scenario and you would need to look at the specific mechanism of action and microbe and metabolite and so on. But for a, generic, for a general consumer, I'd say if, have, if you have the option between a, a pasteurized product and the equivalent product, but which hasn't been pasteurized, I would go with the non-pasteurized version. Yeah, yeah. And so how, what, what do you think this field will bring in the future, both in terms of research and then applying that to consumers as well? You know, will we be able to create our own personalized fermented foods with our own kind of combination that's specific for us? That's very kind of popular in the microbiome field these days about how do we kind of get personalized treatments or 
or how will we bring back that diversity, for example, in the foods? What, what do you see happening in the next five to 10 years in, in the field? I, I see lots of different tangents and lots of exciting things happening. So even away from the pl applied perspective, there's lots of people doing really cool fundamental work. People like um, Rachel Dutton and Ben Wolf, who are using fermented foods almost as a, uh, a, a specific environment where you can test fundamental interactions between bacteria and mold and um, real systems biology type stuff and, and, and really exciting um, research. From an applied perspective, again, I can see multiple different routes being taken. I can I see the large um, multinationals who make fermented foods uh, becoming more aware of the need for, for natural foods and uh, a move towards increased complexity within their foods and, and foods that more closely resemble the artisanal product, uh, the artisanal equivalent. So that, that's definitely happening. I would like to think, and, and where it's something that we're, we're really passionate about in our group is the the whole kind of personalization side of things um i envisage a situation so i don't want fermented foods to become medicalized i, I want them to be available to consumers in general but if you think about the, the the step before you get to medicalized foods whereby you have somebody who's pre-diabetic and so they may benefit from um, having particular consuming particular fermented foods. And if we could identify what those foods are and get the right strains, then you can make a version of kefir or kombucha or, or kimchi or whatever that, that's designed specifically for them and has the right microbes for their needs. But you might have somebody else who's susceptible to mild bouts of depression. And so they may need a different version of that particular product. So, and we've had a lot of discussions with even, um, say, athletes and, and, um, and, and professional athletes, but also people who are just interested in, in keeping fit and, and whatnot. So there might be a whole different um, series of products designed for them and similarly for the elderly and infants and, and, and whatnot. So I, I think all of that is possible. Uh, there's the, the research is playing catch up and still has a way to go to facilitate that, but I don't see why we can't move in, in that area in, in the years to come. So thanks for listening to the Biomes podcast, sponsored by Microbiome Insights. My name is Dr. Ruri Robertson. Tune in next time for some more exciting insights into the latest developments in the human microbiome.